Our Old Testament reading today is from the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verses 9 through 18. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go round as a slander among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The word of the Lord. Today's psalm is Psalm 27. We will read responsively by whole verse. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom then shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom then shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, came on me to eat up my flesh, Though a host were encamped against me, yet my heart would not be afraid. And though war rose up against me, yet would I put my trust in him. One thing have I desired of the Lord, one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the fair beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his heaven. And now he shall lift up my head above my enemies round about me. Therefore I will offer in his dwelling an oblation of greater gladness. I will sing and speak praises unto the Lord. Hearken to my voice, O Lord, when I cry unto you. Have mercy upon me and hear me. You seek my heart and say, seek my face. Your face, O Lord, will I seek. O oh, hide not your face from me, nor cast your servant away in displeasure. You have been my helper. Lead me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord takes me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in the right way, because of my enemies. Deliver me not over to the will of my adversaries. For there are false witnesses who have risen up against me, and those who speak wrong. I would utterly have fainted, had I not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. O oh, wait for the Lord, be strong, and he shall comfort your heart. O oh, put your trust in the Lord. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and never shall be, world 
Our New Testament reading today is from the book of Philippians, starting with chapter 3, verse 17, and continuing through chapter 4, verses, verse 1. Sisters, sisters and brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly and their glory and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel passage today comes from Luke, chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Will you please stand and read the gospel? Church, this is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the rocks? And he said, The one who showed you mercy. Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. This is a pretty famous passage of scripture. The story of the Good Samaritan. It's, it's so steeped in our language and in our culture that it's kind of become an expression. And a lot of people don't even know where it comes from. Um, when you, when you hear of someone helping a stranger, they're often referred to as a good Samaritan. A lot of states even have good Samaritan laws where an innocent bystander to a, to a tragedy can't be prosecuted for trying to help even if they end up making it worse. 
And I'm genuinely excited to preach this passage today. It's one of my favorite passages, and I've never gotten to preach it. Um, and I'm going to skip to the end of the story right at the beginning. Uh, guess who this passage is really about? What was that? I think it's the Sunday school answer. It's, it's Jesus. That's what this passage is really about. If, if you're only a little bit familiar with this story, it can sound like a, a very simple, albeit challenging, morality tale. It can sound like a, a life lesson. But if you read the full story and if you read it carefully, the whole picture becomes so much richer. So I want to talk about kind of the, the fullness of, of what is going on here in this passage in Luke. So let me get right into it. Verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up in front of him to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So this, this lawyer, it's probably more like an expert in the law. It didn't mean that he was like a trial attorney. It, it was a lawyer was someone who was an expert in the law. It maybe meant that he was a, a religious leader of the day, maybe a Pharisee. Maybe he worked in the temple. Because you remember, the, the laws that governed Israel at this time were the exact same thing that the, of the, that the laws that governed their religion. It was the same. The, the state and the church was the same. So this guy stands up because he's probably heard of Jesus. He probably knows about his fame. And he wants to see, is this guy, is this guy really all that people say he's cracked up to be? And we can tell what kind of test he's going to give him by how he starts talking. Teacher, he says. Basically, so, so you're supposed to be this great, wise teacher. Let me, let me try and test you with this. And then he asks him what, what might actually be considered a gotcha question. He says, what do I have to do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And right there with that first sentence, if you think about it, it's a nonsense question. I mean, it really, it can't be answered. There's no, it's a, it's a trap. Or there's one blindingly obvious answer. Because he's saying, what can I do to inherit eternal life? What is, what's an inheritance? It's something that someone else gives to you. As an example, we, we have a son. His name is Gus. And I am a huge fan of Gus. Like, I, I love this kid. And unless God intervenes in some mighty way, he is going to be our only child. And so when Elizabeth and I die, he is going to get 100% of all of our stuff. What did he do to merit that inheritance? What did he have to do to gain that inheritance? Nothing. Nothing. He couldn't do anything. He was born. He didn't choose to be born. He was born. His birth mom got matched with us in the adoption process. He didn't choose that. It was done, something done to him, not something he did. So what do we have to do to inherit anything? Nothing. There's nothing we can do. But Jesus doesn't fall into this trap. He, it's, it's actually, it's really classic Jesus. Someone asks him a question, and instead of answering him, he asks another question in return. This is one of my favorite Bible facts. I bring it up with some regularity. Uh, over the course of all four Gospels, Jesus is asked 183 different questions. He answers three of them. But of those 180 remaining questions, what he does by way of an answer is he asks 307 questions of his own in reply. 
And that's exactly what he does here, too. He answers a question with a question. This is actually pretty classic Jewish rabbinical teaching. So he throws it back on him, and he turns right back to this guy's area of expertise. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, okay, you tell me. You're the, you're the law guy. What's the law say? And the lawyer, quite rightly, I might add, lists the two things that Jesus says in a different passage are the entire summary of the law. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is also known as the Shema. It's something that Jews will say every day. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. So that's Deuteronomy 6. And then he goes on to pair that with Leviticus 19, which we just heard read. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this expert in the law has answered the question the exact same way that Jesus does. We say it almost every week of the year, not during Lent, because we read the Ten Commandments. But the rest of the year, we read the summary of the law in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, on these two commandments, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend everything else in the Bible, all the law and the prophets. So that's what this lawyer says. Jesus congratulates him. And he's not being ironic. He says, you're right. If you follow those two rules, you will live. And, and that word there, live, it doesn't, that word is doing a lot of heavy lifting. It doesn't mean if you don't follow those two rules, you'll be struck dead. It means that you will have life. It means that you will have life with God or life eternal. It's kind of the same thing that's picked up on uh, in the psalm, that you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's all you have to do. It's that simple. All you have to do to live forever in the glory of God, the exact same way that the first people ever created, Adam and Eve, they were intended to live forever in the glory of God. All you have to do is follow two rules. But you have to follow them perfectly. That's, that's, that's the little key. You have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you have to love your neighbor exactly the same way that you love yourself. So I guess the question is, how, how are any of us doing with that? Because the Bible doesn't say, try to live this way. It doesn't say, have the intention of doing this. It doesn't say, do this more often than you don't do this. Like, if I can do this 51% of the time, I'm good. It says, this is, the, this is the standard. So while it's a great guide for us, and it's a great goal for us, how are any of us doing with that? It's literally unattainable. And I think that perhaps that lawyer knew that he hadn't lived up to the standard either, because he tries to, it says he tries to justify himself, basically trying to show that his actions were maybe not quite as bad as some people might think, because he wants to, he wants to clarify. He's asking Jesus to define his terms. He says, okay, um, who is my neighbor? And once again, another question that Jesus doesn't answer, but he instead tells this short story in return. And it's important to remember this. This parable, this story that Jesus tells, the story that we know is the Good Samaritan, is framed within this conversation that he's having with this lawyer about how to get eternal life. That's really important. So this is the first parable that we're looking at in our journey through Luke. It's easy sometimes if you're, it's easy sometimes to think that Jesus spoke to people in parables so that he could take complex theological concepts and, and reduce them to 
to simple stories that the rural agrarian first century people could understand, right? Like he was, he was speaking to them in simple language. It sounds like he's doing them a favor by talking to them in stories rather than kind of careful long teaching. But, but that's not what parables are. And, and we know that because Jesus himself says that. Think of it this way. It's like a code. It's, it's, it's a little bit like a secret code in a way that Jesus could speak with his disciples out loud, plainly, clearly in front of other people, people that genuinely disliked him, the Pharisees, the rulers of the day, people that weren't his followers. And he could speak to them in parables out loud in a way that he knew that nobody else would understand. It's like if you ever have a, a friend who's a, a second generation immigrant, but whose parents around the house will talk to one another in Mandarin or Farsi or Spanish or whatever because they know the kids won't understand. So they can just, they can just carry on a conversation right in front of their kids knowing there's no chance the kids are going to understand. That's basically what parables are. In Mark 4 and in Matthew 13, Jesus himself says that he speaks in parables because he wants to be able to speak to people who get it right in front of people who don't get it. That's what Jesus was doing. So, a couple more things about parables. Parables are almost always about the kingdom of heaven. They are glimpses and pictures of what the kingdom of God looks like. And you can, in, in, in parables where there are people, not all parables have people. Some is like, you know, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Okay, there's no, there's no people in there. But when there's, when there's definable people characters, you can often do yourself a real favor by saying, which one of these people is standing in for God? Which, which one of these people is just like Jesus wearing a hat? And so I think that can be helpful to us here. So the lawyer tries to get Jesus to define his terms and say, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells this story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him dead. Jerusalem is at the top of a very high hill. And to go to Jericho, which is to the east of it, you literally have to go down. And it's a treacherous road. It was a treacherous road back then. It is a treacherous road today. I've actually, I've actually been in a bus that was on that road. And it is no joke scary. And at that time, it was a great place to get mugged. Like, as soon as you got outside of Jerusalem and a little bit down the hill, this was a place where people would frequently fall into, um, would, would get, frequently get attacked by bandits. So this man is walking down from Jerusalem. He gets attacked, robbed, stripped naked, and left for dead. A priest walks by, crosses over to the other side of the street. And then a, a Levite, somebody who's been consecrated and set aside for, for worship and for teaching, he walks by too, crosses over to the other side of the street. Are these people uncaring? Are we supposed to look at them and say, well, they're, they're not being neighborly. How can they be so cold and heartless? I, I don't think that's what's in view here. I, I genuinely think we're supposed to see them as actually following the law. These are people who are probably coming from Jerusalem down that same road. And so that means they were at the temple. They had undergone all of the, the ceremonial cleansing and the purification rituals necessary to do their work of the priest or the Levite inside the temple. 
priests and Levites, according to the Old Testament law, were not allowed to touch a dead body. They just weren't. And if they did, it would have meant that they had become ritually or ceremonially unclean. And so you can imagine these guys coming down from Jerusalem, and there's a dead body there. And they're saying to themselves, I really don't want to go all the way back up to Jerusalem to do the purification rites again. I just did that. And the Torah says I'm not supposed to touch a dead body. And if this guy isn't dead, he's going to be real soon. So the priest walks by, crosses to the other side. The Levite walks by, crosses to the other side. Apparently there was a, a storytelling motif at the time, or kind of a grouping of three things. You'd have a, the priest, the Levite, and the, the people. The priest, the Levite, and the people. This is couple times in the Old Testament. And so maybe this lawyer was kind of anticipating that the third thing that would walk by was a group of people. But Jesus is a master storyteller. And he, and he then brings in a third character that would have been shocking for this lawyer to hear. Simply put, in our broadly, uh, you know, white majority American culture, we don't have a category for how Jews thought about Samaritans, at least in our experience, not in our lifetimes. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And they had hated each other for 700 years. To the Jew, the idea of a good Samaritan would have been impossible because there weren't any. There weren't any good Samaritans. So originally Israel had been one country, but then a thousand years before the time of Jesus, it had split into two, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had gotten taken over by an empire known as Assyria. And the Assyrians had brought in foreigners into this northern kingdom of Israel. And they had intermarried and interbred. And so over the course of years, because the northern kingdom no longer had access to Jerusalem, where the temple was, the northern kingdom made its own temple. And they started to have their own version of the Bible. And they started to have their own laws and their own rules. And so the Jews of the southern kingdom thought that the, thought that the Samaritans were no longer Jewish by any definition. And in fact, they, they referred to them as dogs and foreigners. So over the course of a couple hundred years, the Jews and the Samaritans truly hated each other. So think of it like this. Instead of, the, instead of a priest and then a Levite and then a Samaritan, if you if you're, want to think of a good example, Think of it as if a, a group of German Jews in the 1940s were standing around and they started to hear a story about a priest and then a Levite and then a good Nazi. That's about the closest comparison that I can think of. So here comes our third guy, a Samaritan. Ugh. So the lawyer has to be thinking, a Samaritan's going to come by? I mean, what's he going to do, like kick the dead body, try to see if there's anything left that he can steal? But this is where Jesus turns the tables and he says, no. He sees this, this bloody, naked, near-dead man lying on the side of the road and he has compassion for it. He tends to his wounds. He performs basic emergency medical care on him. He deals with the cuts and the bruises. He stops the bleeding. And then, because this man has nothing, the Samaritan puts him on his own donkey. Then he goes into town. He heads to an inn, presumably somewhere between Jerusalem and Jericho. So this is still Jewish territory. 
Imagine a hated and loathed Samaritan coming into a Jewish town with a bloody, beaten, half-dead Jew slung over the back of his donkey. Just the, the courage that it would take him for the Samaritan to do that. So he goes into town, he finds an inn, and he pays for the man to stay there. And he stays there with him for the rest of the day. Then he says, do whatever you have to do to help this man rest and recuperate. Here's money. Two denarii, which is probably two full day's wages. A good chunk of what this guy would make in a week for a complete stranger that he may have not even spoken a word with yet. He says, here's money. Spend whatever you need. And if, and if you overspend this, when I come back, I'll make it up to you. I'll pay the rest of the debt myself. So having told that story, Jesus returns to the lawyer's question and says, who's my neighbor? And in classic Rabbi Jesus fashion, he ends the story not with an answer of his own, but with another question. He says, which of those three do you think was a neighbor to this near dead man? And the lawyer, who is himself a Jew, and, and, and I'm not the only one to, I've, I've seen this in a bunch of commentaries, the lawyer can't even say the name of the man. He doesn't say the Samaritan. He just says, the one who shows him mercy. And Jesus says, now you go and do likewise. Basically, Jesus is saying, despite all that you believe, despite what you might even want to be true, there simply are no distinctions of ethnicity or class or nationality between neighbors in the kingdom of God. So, this, this little story, this little portrait, is a, is a great picture of what truly selfless love for neighbors looks like. It is a great and, and all-encompassing definition of who is my neighbor. And Jesus is showing a much bigger definition of who our neighbor is than we would like to think about. Because anybody can show self-giving love for someone they, they love, for a family member, for a friend. And so you can actually, I can kind of picture the lawyer saying, oh, so I'm supposed to show love to people I don't like? But in the story, it's not even that the Samaritan is showing love to people that he don't, doesn't like. Because if we're supposed to be like the Samaritan, if we're supposed to go and do likewise, we are actually supposed to show this kind of self-giving love. Not just to people that we don't like, not just even to people that we hate, but to people who actively hate us. I mean, this is Jesus all over the Gospels. Love your enemies. Pray for the good of those who hate you. Bless your enemies. Seek to help them. These are all the instructions. These are all instructions given by Jesus. He calls us to, he says, give of yourself just freely and lavishly. Find ways. Look for ways to bless others. And you have to think that's true because surely... This Samaritan that was wandering by on the Jericho Road, he must have had other plans that day, right? He wasn't just roving the countryside looking for people to do first aid on. He was going somewhere. He had his own life. But then, here's this man, beaten, bloody, nearly dead. And so he says, I, I have this oil and wine, and surely he had some other purpose for it, but now we're going to use it for this. And, and I have this money, probably the equivalent of, of at least a couple hundred dollars. And I was going to buy food with it or, or, or do whatever with it. But, but now, here's an opportunity to do something different. 
So now we're going to do this with it. R.C. Sproul, in, in his absolutely excellent book on Luke, he, he put it this way. He said that the Bible is very clear that there is a definitive brotherhood in the kingdom of God. There are people who are followers of Jesus. There are people who are not followers of Jesus. Everyone who is a follower of Jesus is your brother and your sister. And there is fellowship there because we are a family. But, Sproul says, it is very clear. There is absolutely no definitive neighborhood in the kingdom of God. That the neighborhood of the kingdom of God is the world. And that everyone, regardless of who they are or what they think of you, or where they've come from, or what they've done, or even what they've done to get them in the position they are right now, everyone, each and every human being created in the image of God, is our neighbor. So when we see people who are in need, we are just called to help them, even if it's someone that we know hates us. And, and I understand, and I'm sure Jesus' disciples did too, that is a big ask. Like, that's not nothing. That's not trivial. Jesus himself has said that following him was going to be hard. And it's one of the reasons that we are called to fellowship within the brotherhood of Christ. That we build each other up, that we equip each other, that we strengthen each other, that we encourage each other. So that in the neighborhood of Christ, which is the world, we feel even more free and desirous of helping others. It's also why Jesus says, it's also why he calls us back to him over and over so that he can give us rest because following him is hard. So, it is possible to look at this whole thing, this whole illustration of the Good Samaritan as a really excellent example of Leviticus 19. A really full-orbed way of how do we love our neighbor as ourselves, And that is absolutely not wrong. You can do that. But if you stop there, you're missing the fuller picture of what Jesus is saying. Because remember, this whole story is in, is in response to, Teacher, how may I inherit eternal life? And remember that parables were designed to be illuminating to those who had no faith. I'm sorry, illuminating to those who have faith, but confusing to those who have no faith. They were designed to give glimpses of what the kingdom of heaven is like. And more often than not, these illustrations, these parables, are designed to show us what God is like more than morality tales of what we should be like. Remember what I said earlier? A good exercise in a parable is to look at it and, and look at the characters and say, where's God in this? Which one of these characters is supposed to represent God? So, think back to the story that Jesus tells. Sacrificially giving of himself. Giving of himself to someone who didn't even know him to someone who is near dead, to someone who, if he was conscious enough to even say words, probably would have hated this rescuer. Who does it sound like I'm describing here? The, the Samaritan sounds just like Jesus. And so who are we in this story? We're the, the traveling man, beaten, bloodied, stripped naked, never able to even think about making it to the destination that we wanted to go to. Teacher, how may I inherit eternal life? I think Jesus is saying, you have absolutely no chance of getting there on your own. You are lying by the side of the road. You are bloodied and battered and broken and near dead. No chance of getting to your destination. 
And then a priest walks by, but crosses to the other side. Because the law won't save you. Observing the law won't save you. Because in your condition, the law wouldn't do you any good anyway. A Levite, an assistant in temple worship, walks by, crosses over to the other side. Observing religious rituals won't save you, won't even touch you. So who can, who can help you to your destination? Who can help you get this, this eternal life, this life with God, this life in the house of the Lord forever that you want? Who's going to help you with that? Someone that you hate. Someone that you despise and consider your enemy. In Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6, it says, At the right time, while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely would someone die for a righteous person, though for a, a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us is that in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from death? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we, we, will we be saved by his life? So that's the, that's, that's the full picture. Who, who's any of us? We are, we are the man lying by the side of the road. Who's the good Samaritan? Who's the, who's the true helper, the, the wound healer? The one who gives generously of everything that he had for somebody who probably hated him. It's Jesus. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And once we start to realize that, once we start to understand who we are and who Jesus is and what he has done for us, then, only then, can we start to even hope of following Jesus' command, now you go and do likewise. Because once we realize that, once we get that our identity is rooted in the fact that Christ has saved us, I am somebody who Jesus saved. That's, my, that's the core of my identity. And now I'm, I'm free to give of myself to others. And not just to family or to, to close friends, not even to, to strangers, but to people who actively hate me. Once we realize that we have no chance on our own, but that Christ was the one who did all the work. He's the one who found us. He's the one who healed us. He's the one who saved us. Once we realize that, then it's our privilege and, and our duty to use our oil and wine to treat someone else's wounds, to use our two denarii, our couple hundred dollars, half a week's wages, to give away to a stranger, and to stay with him and to make sure that he gets better, and then to circle back with him to make sure there's nothing else that we can do, finding other ways to bless him. The point is this. Apart from Christ's intervention in our life, each of us, all of us, are half dead by the side of the road. And then after Christ rescues us, we become his apprentices. The Apostle Paul says to be imitators of Christ, and that's what we are. Not in order to save ourselves. Not in order, like, the, teach, like the, the lawyer wanted. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's not in order to get this eternal life, but it's because, through Jesus, we already have it. Let me pray. God, I pray that you would 
that you would this week, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us willing hands, open arms to embrace those who have need, even those that we don't know, even those who might actively dislike us. And God, I thank you for, for the true good Samaritan, for the one who found us when we were helpless and who bound up our wounds and who healed us. And so now we get to follow him. Thank you for this, Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.